Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? Good. Is this our vacation episode, or uh, what's what's going on here? I I think we're a week late. Yeah, bit of a programming note to all the listeners. There was no bonus vacation episode last week, because about an hour before we were scheduled to record, I was welcoming my first child into the world. So Charlie is here, healthy and happy. My wife, Alice, is doing great also. And now it's just great to be podcasting again, man. I've missed this. Well, I mean, Charlie is already a team player. Uh, I, you know, I brought up maybe months ago. I'm not sure when it first came up. Like, when's the due date exactly? When do my kids spring break? Boy, wouldn't it be great if Charlie showed up that week? And not only does he show up that week, he shows up like the first possible day of that week, like the <laughs> yeah. Saturday before. So we could overlap, you know, my vacation, your hilariously brief paternity leave. I, I'm a terrible boss, I guess. Uh, but yes, uh, char- great job by Charlie. He's already on the Chucky Plus team, and we're glad to have you along with the ride as well. Yes, we're still going to be on a reduced schedule this week. We should be back to normal next week, but... We get a lot of emails from listeners who ask, like, how does Ben do it? Like, what's his production function? What does he read? How does he produce all this stuff? I just want everyone to know you should be most mystified by Ben's ability to manifest the birth of my son. Two weeks early. Perfectly. (laughs) Yeah, two and a half weeks early. I have no idea how he did it, but I'm glad he did. It's been a whirlwind of a week here. But do you have any do you have any one week takeaways from being a dad? Um one week takeaway. So I was talking to Dumman, our colleague, and said, you know, it's a little bit disappointing because I like to zag, but so far Every parenting cliche has been true. And so that's true for the good cliches. Like it's probably the coolest experience. It's definitely the coolest experience I've ever had. And there are little windows of each day where you're just totally blown away. And then at the same time, people are always saying like parenting is exhausting. And it it sort of reminds me of like when I was moving out to LA and people would talk about the traffic and I sit there and think like, it doesn't really matter. Simmons mentioned this in his interview with you. He's (laughs) like, it was idiotic for him to live in Santa Monica and try to work downtown. And it was in fact idiotic, but coming from DC, I was like, I've been in traffic like I can survive and uh, it's a completely different level in LA and it's a completely different level of exhaustion in parenting but you know we're having fun with it so I I can't complain so far all right good well um uh, we have a topic that I'm fairly fired up about so I think that we can we can get through it okay but congratulations to you very happy for you cannot wait to meet Charlie Mm. And yeah, I mean, Charlie already contributing. It's a great sign. <laughs> That's right. He's a team player here. Um, all right. Well, we'll come back to a couple parenting questions later in the show that we're supposed to be on the bonus episode. But first and foremost, you mentioned being fired up. There was a bit of a kerfuffle over the past few days. So John on Twitter asks, when at Ben Thompson returns from vacation, can you please discuss Elon's decision to censor Substack from Twitter? And I'll just provide some context for anyone who's been offline for the past couple of days. 
From Nilay Patel at The Verge, he writes, Substack, the popular subscription newsletter platform for writers, launched a new feature called Notes last week, which is fairly similar to Twitter. Twitter, the world historical cloud car of a company currently operated by Elon Musk. Oh, just say, do, do, you, do you know why it's this reference, by the way? Uh, I actually, I love the word. I, I, I want to call it. I mean, I love delay. And this is great wording. The <laughs> world historical clown car of a company currently operated by Elon Musk. What is important to note is it's always been a clown car of a company and it's currently operated by Elon Musk. This is not an insult on Elon. This is a reference to an apocryphal quote. That's ascribed to Mark Zuckerberg, although he's denied it. He said that he didn't actually say this, um, but that Twitter is a clown car that fell in a gold mine, which mm. is basically this company that's that's been incompetent and dysfunctional from literally day one. But the product was so good and it fit the market <laughs> so well that they can't help but continue to exist and be valuable. Uh, so, you know, there's just uh, this is a reference that's useful. I think it's going to be useful in this conversation. So I just want to make sure everyone understands uh, Neil here is not insulting Elon Musk per se. He's yeah. referring to Twitter generally. And that said, Elon Musk is, is continuing this tradition. But sorry, <laughs> yeah. continue, continue. Well, that, that's why I was laughing as you were explaining that. First of all, very valuable context. I was not aware that that was a reference to an apocryphal Mark Zuckerberg quote. I fully believe that he called them a cloud car that fell into a gold mine. <laughs> I'm just going to choose to buy that one. Uh, but what's great about Twitter is that literally any year over the last 17 years, you could call them a clown car and it would be factually correct, including perhaps especially over the last six months under good old Elon. Um, That's why it's so great. Currently operated by Elon Musk. It's like this is the chapter. This is the current chapter, the current <laughs> yeah. model year. It's like a clown car that gets different model years. This is the, the Elon Musk model. Well, Twitter says, or excuse me, The Verge says, Twitter responded by blocking the ability to like or retweet any posts containing the word Substack, throwing up a warning message if users clicked on Substack links, and finally blocking even the word Substack from being searched. Substack users, the vast majority of whom are independent small business owners who depend on Substack as an enterprise software provider, mostly responded to this by saying they would leave Twitter and use Substack notes. So um, I should note that there has also been back and forth between Elon Musk and Matt Taibbi. Musk unfollowed Taibbi, and the Substack leadership has made a few statements along the way that I've omitted here. And as of Sunday night, it does appear that Twitter has stopped throttling the Substack content, although I still can't search for the word Substack on Twitter, yeah, which it, is it, hilarious. It, you, you can't search like from M. Taibbi and like for like Twitter files, for example, yes. which is uh, lots of people are making the leopard spotted party, you know, attacked by a leopard or whatever it might be, which does seem does seem uh, useful, a useful <laughs> analogy uh, in this case. But the other thing is. Twitter did, quote unquote, open source their algorithm. Uh, I'm not claiming that I was wrong because it's not the real algorithm. Like, mm. and it doesn't have the actual weights. It was interesting. Um, but we also don't know what does no longer throttling mean. Like, right. you couldn't retweet and like a tweet with Substack in it. And and even if you use a redirect sort of URL, it would throw up this warning. That's gone. 
but I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, if they are severely penalized in this sort of Twitter algorithm. But anyhow, uh, yeah, neither, it, it's, neither here it's nor there. Not as extreme and hilariously petty as it was on Friday, but I'm quite sure that there's still like some weird stuff that happens if you're trying to promote a Substack on Twitter. Right. Oh no. Who by the say? way, more more credit to Charles because uh, this is a case where we were, were able to podcast <laughs> true. after the Elon Musk reversal. Instead of uh, you know commenting on it too soon, so um, uh, thanks to Chuck. Yes, perfect timing for my new son. Um, so in general, Ben, what do you think of all this? Like, how do you answer John's question? Looking for a reaction, where do you want to start? Well, there, I, I think there's an underappreciated, which seems sort of obvious, but everyone, of course, this is the whole Elon Musk sort of conundrum of talking about Twitter. Everyone's talking about Twitter, how stupid Twitter is, X, Y, Z. And this is the problem with all these discussions is everyone, like Elon Musk has become sort of this partisan character and people start with that and then sort of back into their opinions when there are two companies involved in this dispute. It's not just Twitter. It's also Substack. And the Substack part actually in some respects has me a little more fired up. But I'm sure the people want to hear about Twitter, so we can we can start we can start with Twitter. And, <laughs> there you and go. Elon Musk. Give the people what they want. One for them, and then we'll do one for you with a little Substack mini segment. Well, excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the the, the 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 fortitude offering me a little bit at the end after we throw some red meat out. Um, well, the, with the Twitter bit, there is more historical context beyond just being a clown car, and this goes back to the birth of Instagram. So Instagram. You know, Twitter back in the early days is this API utopia, right? Everyone build apps and and do X Y Z, and the whole this is the whole Web 2.0 era, and the future's APIs and third party developers innovating on your platform. Which, by the way, I think is the path Twitter should have always stayed on. Like, I think that Twitter would be a much different, more interesting, more valuable company had they become like a short message protocol for the web, like email. But like, but something different, and unlike email, owned by a single company like that. I, but the problem with that is that would have taken a tremendous amount of strategy and foresight and long term planning and building. And we just established that's not what Twitter has ever had or sort of been capable of. Well, so, and they like, were also a public company, which sort of complicated their incentive structure. Well, but it, back when they killed sort of the third party, the third party developer ecosystem, they were not a private company. They, they, had, they were not a public company. They were not a public company. That's right. They had tremendous pressure to become a public company because they were like five or six years in. And back then. Being five or six years in as a, and not going public was actually a bad thing. Like it's been, it's been different over the last sort of few years. But so, so they, you know, they had pressure and they sort of picked the lowest hanging fruit. Or the way I would put it is, I think Twitter was had the potential to like go to like a Michelin star restaurant to be this incredible sort of basically be web infrastructure and to have a complete not just short message, but all sorts of clients built on top of this and being like this protocol for, for short form communications. Like think about email, email is not just communication. It's also notifications. It's also sort of transaction stuff. It's also, you know, it's newsletters, like all sorts of stuff can travel across email. It would have been interesting to see Twitter be this, not just be tweets, but what else could they be? Could it be like, could there be machines talking to machines via Twitter, right? Like it's sort of this, this idea of, of, of a public, a public web that sort of connects all sorts of things together. But 
instead of sort of arriving at that restaurant, they stopped off at McDonald's and they just sort of bought a Big Mac, right? <laughs> What's and that easiest, Big Mac yeah. was was basically we're going to be an ad supported business like Facebook. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're and as part of that, we're going to make everyone use our app. Now, of course, they didn't go all the way, right? This was we. I think we talked about this last year, where part of the irony of, of everyone getting upset about Elon Musk killing all the third party Twitter apps is that's what Twitter's management should have done a decade ago. If you're going to go in that direction, go in that direction. Instead, they didn't have the guts to sort of like follow through their strategic decision to its logical endpoint, and they let this third-party ecosystem sort of limp along that did not contribute to their strategic where they were going mm-hmm. and which should have been which was going to be the Twitter app and and that's where ads are and we're going to pull all the data in and uh it, 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 the fact that that was universally panned as Elon Musk is a moron kind of speaks to why it's hard to talk about Twitter and Elon Musk because I think the more interesting point is the historical point is why didn't Twitter do this a decade ago and yeah. and, and and now I think Elon Musk had an opportunity to reverse that, to lean back into being an API. I talked about this before, like separate Twitter into the service component and the app component. But obviously, uh, Elon Musk <laughs> Elon <laughs> Musk makes Twitter's former management well, look farsighted and strategic. So uh, it's, all, it's all sort of a mess all the way down. It, it has also been one of the most frustrating aspects of his tenure, which has been frustrating in a lot of different ways. But the idea that he might have reimagined Twitter and taken it in a more interesting direction business model wise now looks pretty foolish in retrospect because he's basically running the same playbook that previous management did albeit with a little bit more of like a comprehensive like coherent ability to follow through on some of those decisions well i mean, um, <laughs> well, I mean it depends how you want to define that but yes i think that's actually a good point right so you go back to like the Twitter files thing, right? Which is, you know, we mentioned Matt Taibbi here. And one of the conditions on getting access to all this internal Twitter documentation was that you had to post it on Twitter, right? And that sort of follows through from the, we want people to like, the, that's the Big Mac Twitter strategy, which is keep content on Twitter, keep people engaged on Twitter, make Twitter essential, and we're going to show ads to you on Twitter. Like that's just, it's, there's an aspect here where, Musk actually is following through on that strategy to a much greater extent than sort of former management was. And, you know, I guess it sort of makes sense, except unless you think the overall management, you know, to your point, <laughs> was a chance to rethink well, the whole thing. Right? right. It was penny wise, pound foolish over the last but that's, t- 10 to 15 that's, years. The way oh, you're that's where his entire it. history is penny wise yeah. and pound foolish. Right. And so, so anyhow, so all, all this is sort of general context. We, I, I actually, that was a sidecar to the general context, which is Instagram. <laughs> so Instagram comes along in this world of APIs and Instagram, you know, is a very exemplary company for lots of ways. One of which is how do you actually build a social network? And you don't build a social network from day one. You don't you don't become a platform from day one. You have to start out by being useful, right? Uh, you, 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 you like, there's a, I, I've written about this a lot. Like, like Apple and Microsoft, for example. Microsoft's a great platform company. Apple's a great product company. Guess mm-hmm. what? Apple gets to be the platform because you have to build a great product first, right? That, that's why the iPhone succeeded where, where, you know, Windows 8 and all those sorts of things did not. And, and so the, in this case, Instagram built this filtering capability, right? And, and they were, it wasn't just them; it was like Hipstamatic and like some other ones. But they they included oh, Hipstamatic. You, you, haven't heard that one in years. Um, yes, okay, continue. Right, 
Yeah, so this was like your original sort of iPhone, iPhone 3G, I think it might have been. And the quality's terrible. And so you put apply these filters and it's like, oh, quirkily uh, yeah. terrible, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, and then it, you would take a picture and then you could select all your social networks. You could link them up because, again, open APIs, everyone has an API. And then you could post them to Facebook, post them to Twitter with one button, one touch of a, 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 a one click of a button. And in the meantime, though, Instagram's adding on their own feed, their own social network. But the hard part of the social network is how do you actually get your friends? How do you find them? How do you discover them? Well, we're in the open API world. Instagram just takes all your friends from Twitter, right? Yep. It's, it basically, you link up your Instagram account with your Twitter account, and then it just ingests your entire network. And the thing is, is that from a strategic business perspective, this was a disaster for Twitter. Twitter arguably at the time six months or nine months on twitter cut this off right it was a big it was a big controversy in silicon valley at the time because it was against this open api ethos and against the web and people like what what's twitter doing bad company my reaction is twitter should have done this six months ago just like the kicking developers off if you're gonna like you have to understand what the value sort of of you you have and their Mm -hmm. network was a super valuable piece that instagram basically completely lifted off of them and that it wasn't they didn't break any laws like the, the the api was available to that twitter made it made it possible to do and so instagram basically takes on your whole network and then they attach it to a much more pleasant social networking experience, which right. is just photos. It's not text. It, like photos, and are- it's a cheat code to the hardest part of building a social network is pulling in all your contacts and and making it like very easy for people. That's right. And the Twitter network in particular is the most valuable network in many regards because. Facebook is friends and family who you probably also have their phone numbers, right? And so you can, the the sort of shortcut is to upload your contacts. I don't have the phone numbers for the vast, vast majority of people I follow on Twitter, right? Like Twitter has always been compelling because their graph is interest-based. It's not sort of physical location or like who you grew up with based. It's something completely different. Twitter's creation of a completely new kind of social network that's why it's the clown car in a gold mine that is gold <laughs> it's like incredibly valuable and instagram basically just took the whole thing and, and and so i think in retrospect everyone now does agree with the assertion that twitter made a mistake in not acting sooner to sort of cut instagram off and i think you can see where we're going with this news with substack and but this goes both ways, right? You, there is this clear sort of adjacency or not adjacency. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, symbiosis between mm-hmm. Twitter and Substack, right? And, and I know this from strategy. Like as I've talked about, for large publications, by and large, Facebook and Google are way more important. Twitter doesn't even figure in sort of growth. Where Twitter is valuable is again, it goes back to the power of the Twitter network. It's about your interest. It's very nichey. Right. And that's great for a small publication that is very niche, like strategy or or most Substack writers. And so you have this bit where Twitter is the marketing vehicle and Substack is sort of the business. Right. And it it obviously fits together. And as I've talked about, the power isn't just the authors sharing their links, but the fact that the readers can share the links and sort of direct other people in. And Twitter gives them gives them a megaphone. And that's why Twitter Bot review, which is review was another newsletter platform. And you and so Twitter did this to Substack first, where it's like, 
okay, we clearly go together. We're going to move into your space and provide a newsletter product that people can monetize. And you could see this being a real threat to Substack as well. What if review links are promoted more? What if they generally drive more users? The big thing, like Substack at the end of the day, it, 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 they've done a good job on the user fa- interface and making it easy to use. At the end of the day, what the only thing that really matters is customer acquisition. To what extent can you drive new readers and help them convert to to sort of being being paying readers. And Twitter has the distribution. They have the network. You could see a world where they actually build up review and sort of take out Substack because it's just like, look, if if I post on review, I get so many more subscribers than I than I do on Substack. And they could play games with the algorithm. They could suppress Substack links, and no one, no one would know, right? And, and the review ones are just more more sort of more popular. That was one of the most interesting quirks of this whole thing is like it's now over the last 10 to 15 years in digital media publishing. It's sort of like a cliche. Twitter does not drive any traffic. Don't even worry about Twitter. Don't even think about Twitter. It's a complete non-event. And yet with Substack, you're marketing to like the hyper literate news addicts like it's it's a meaningful platform and and megaphone for people who are trying to like pull in subscribers and and i it's honestly how i use twitter more than anything else these days it's like a discovery mechanism for interesting long reads that are often on substack and so i i understand the creators being like well, oh shit, like this is a real problem for us if Twitter's going to start throttling everything and this this promotional avenue is just going away. Right. Well, and this is well this is an example of how Twitter is a clown car because Twitter should have bought Substack like when Substack was small and cheap, right? Like there was mm. a long time where Substack's total number of subscribers was lower than Stratechery, right? Like <laughs> but you Twitter should have seen this adjacency should have seen this makes total sense and should have been, Oh, that makes sense. Let's buy them up, you know, give them, you know, the founders a a nice return. That is what they should have done when they didn't, when Substack sort of blew up during the pandemic, then Twitter, the review acquisition made sense. The problem is you're dealing with a company that is just can't execute and is slow. And one thing I heard is that like, I heard like the actual acquisition of review took months and what I heard is because, yeah, Twitter, that's Twitter. They're slow. They, they can't even get an acquisition executed in a, in a decent amount of time. And so ultimately, it all goes back to Twitter just being a poorly managed company that can't execute and, and can't follow through on strategic plans. And the strategic plans they had were dumb, right? Like, like the, the there is an inevitable competition between Twitter and Substack, to your point. And Twitter should have done better, right? Mm-hmm. Now, let's turn to Substack. That goes both ways. Substack has already seen that Twitter sees them as a threat, even pre-Elon Musk, because they bought review. Now, Elon Musk comes along and kills review because Elon Musk doesn't have any sort of plan that we can we can see <laughs> other than say. sort of like pursuing the previous sub op Big Mac plan and basically saying, like, what if we put 47 Big Macs in, in the car? Would, would well, that, yeah. And, and let's have the Twitter files be like. 85 tweets threaded together right. instead of something that anybody can actually sit down and read. No, the the, the Twitter files thing is a perfect example where, where they had, I, I think a, people want to complain that the Twitter files didn't have any big impact because like the mainstream media is sort of like suppressing the bad news. And I mean, you can't disprove a negative, 
But you could also say that why would any news organization want to write about like the whole problem with news is once it's out there, it's out there. It sort of loses its valence, right? The reason why you go to a publication with an exclusive or you're like the Facebook quote-unquote whistleblower is because then they get to have this big breaking news story and they're going to make a big deal out of it, right? There's a, there, there's a, there's a give and take here. And once it's out on Twitter, why do you want to like – what, what, like, what do you do? Just write a story that says, oh, uh, on Twitter, X, Y, Z, about this sort of thing, which again, tweet number wanna, 28, they said right, this. Yeah. <laughs> even if you want to grant that the the sort of news organization was biased against this news or whatever sort of, you know, political partisan sort of argument you want to put on that, you have to also acknowledge there's a real fundamental, there's no motivation to go against that, right? Yeah, Whereas- well, and it is, it's also a real challenge for Twitter more generally because, like I said, it's sort of a discovery mechanism. It's most effective as a discovery mechanism for all sorts of other media. Well, Twitter isn't Twitter an end been. in itself. What, but that's what it's become, right? Like, like the, the, and I think this goes, this goes back to poor decisions made over a decade where Twitter, they, they chose the Big Mac because they needed an IPO and they decided we're going to be a platform where you come to it for the tweets and we're going to show you ads. As opposed to being something that was a protocol that put that distributed, that pushed people, that was essential, that was inescapable, that was a situation where you can imagine a decade on a Substack comes along and Twitter charges them through the wazoo for API access to so because it's essential for distributing their content and they're basically taking a tax off of Substack because Substack knows they need Twitter for distribution. Like this world of Twitter as an API service that's distinct from the app advertising app service is what was, you know, I wrote this when you want to go like, it'd be great if under private ownership, you actually revisited the 2012 decision, go back to being a service and protocol. And you, and, and you, you end up in a situation where a Substack exists. And instead of it being a competitive threat, it's a, uh, it's a, a compliment to yeah. be for like you have a value chain, right? In a value chain, whoever has control of the most important piece ought to be able to extract value from the other pieces of the value chain, right? Apple gets to pull 30% from every app because they control the most important part of the value chain and you have to be there as a developer. You can't sort of say, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna take my my app and go home because you're you take your app and go home and be out of business, right? You're going to pay that 30% whether you want to or not. Twitter ought to have, way back in the day, put themselves in a position so that when a company like Substack comes along, they're like, they're like oh, Substack, you're going to take 10% no from your writers? <laughs> We're going to take 70% from you. Because- so, so in that version of events, the theory is that Twitter licenses its API to a bunch of more creative third-party developers that come up with additional use cases that right. make it more The way that I think Twitter should have done it is paradigm. they should have monetized their API like way back when, right? Like, and the you know you can build whatever app you want on twitter all sorts of things but you're going to pay for access and we're going to you know extract rents from you and and maybe we're going to be fairly arbitrary and we're going to charge you different rates based on what you do and all these sorts of things and a substack comes along look you're explicitly monetizing on the twitter graph we are going to we're going to extract our sort of fair share from that but they ab- abandoned that again a decade ago and so you end up with this dispute this week where again the substack Twitter dispute is not only an inevitable one, it actually kicked off previously when Twitter bought review, but Twitter can't, Twitter is incompetent. So it's never actually sort of materialized. (laughs) It's the theme of the podcast. Yep. And so this is where I do have a, a, a 
Substack, I think, deserves criticism. What did they expect was going to happen? Yeah. Do you think it's a strategic mistake on Substack's part? Like, regardless of the actual reaction from Musk, shouldn't they have anticipated something like this and recognized that most of their customers or, or I guess creators are vulnerable if Twitter decides to pull the plug and really screw with them? On one hand, on a certain sort of, uh, you know, 10,000 foot level, you can see Substack seeing this opportunity, right? Twitter's a mess. Uh, people are looking for something elsewhere. This is a well-known brand. We have actual creators that people have a demonstrated willingness to pay for. They We have this Substack app that people, presumably lots of people have installed on their phone. And this is a way that we can like pull more people in. The more people we pull in, the more we can promote other Substackers. So we start developing this ability to drive new users, drive new subscribers, or further develop it beyond their sort of like, oh, sign up for these other Substacks when you, you know, when you, which has been pretty successful for them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you can understand the allure here. But there is a view you need to step back to the 20,000 foot level and think about what's still the most important challenge here? Why are we doing this? Why are we trying to get people in the app? Because we want to help people get distribution and acquire new users. You need to think about where are they getting distribution and acquiring new users today? They're getting it on Twitter. Well, it's a huge risk. Yeah, if you're starting from scratch trying to build out that network, I mean, it's unlikely that it's going to succeed. And as I said, I'm rooting for Substack. But for me, thinking about it, it was, you know, what Twitter did on Friday looked creepy and paranoid and obviously unfair to a lot of individual Substack writers. And what Twitter's doing isn't necessarily illegal, but if more social media companies did this to third-party businesses and did it as explicitly as Twitter was doing it last week. Oh, it's like, blatantly anti-competitive. We're, I would bet sure. good money it would become like per se illegal to do this. And so it's an abuse of, of market power. At the same time... But they have, they have very little market <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's Twitter. Uh, good old clown car. You go back to that value chain sort of bit. My critique of Twitter is they didn't build in the extraction tools to properly monetize their position in the value chain. That doesn't change their position in the value chain, which is very important and essential to Substack. And Substack needs to sort of be aware of this. But there's a broader point I want to make. Well, first off, it's worth noting Substack might still get away with it in the end, right? Musk gave in over the weekend. You can now sort of share links. And maybe he got shamed into doing, you know. That happened uh, the last time he tried to do this. <laughs> right. Remember, it was the World Cup sharing final. Mastodon or Instagram. <laughs> totally. Or whatever it might be. So maybe and maybe they looked at that and and if they did like that's some Machiavellian shit which, which I, <laughs> I have to tip my hat to it's like well he's probably going to overreact but there's going to be a huge internet pushback and then he'll back down and it'll be fine and yep. in the meantime we'll get a Streisand effect where everyone will hear about our new notes feature <laughs> so you know it, honestly that might have happened like like I don't want to short short shrift Substack at all because if that's the case and it ends up working out. There is a path here where this is the best thing to happen in notes, and actually its likelihood of success increased significantly 
because of this brouhaha this weekend. Well, so, if, if that's what happened and that's what the strategy was, I moved to replace all Galaxy Brain memes with the Substack icon moving forward on the internet. I'm not, not sure I buy that they they thought through like seven and eight steps of the response here, but it's possible. It's definitely possible. I mean, I, I, like, it's not like any of this was that unpredictable, right? Again, yeah. to your point, we have it happened last year where he's blocking all the Mastodon links, right? And then, you know, uh, so anyhow, so, so, but there is a point that I did want to make sort of here about Substack, which you sort of talked about the poor Substack writers that are just stuck in the middle, right? And, and mm-hmm. look, we just want to share our work and uh, why are we getting punished because we're not part of this? And there were ways around it, particularly if you got a custom domain. It, like, it was literally just a regex block substack.com. It wasn't right. like an IP block or something along those lines. Substack has talked a lot about how they're unabashedly pro-writer and every decision they make is pro-writer. And it's always rubbed me the wrong way. And I think I complained about this a few weeks ago in the con, you know, um, and the reason why, and I said they didn't make some of the right strategic decisions, particularly around getting the rights to bundle. And mm-hmm. as far as locking in their writers, because my, my point was they can never be truly maximal pro writer because the maximal pro writer is always going to be like open source software. Like WordPress is maximally pro writer, right? You can go to wordpress.com, which could be blocked or they could censor you or whatever. You can take the software because it's open source and set it up on another computer and have your writing there, right? That is just, just from a, a technical perspective, open source publishing software is always going to be maximally pro writer and Substack is never going to be that. And the problem with asserting you're something that you cannot be is that you end up in situations like this weekend. Substack has raised a lot of money. They, they're losing a lot of money. They did this raise over the last couple of weeks that frankly really bothered me where they asked their writers to give them money and to give them money at the same valuation they got in the crazy 2021 era. That's ridiculously high. And and I could rant about that in a moment. But this move to do a Twitter competitor makes sense for a company that is desperate to justify its valuation and to grow into something meaningful and maybe one day IPO, right? It, it makes sense for Substack. It does not make sense for the writers, right? right? The writers were fine with distributing on Twitter and monetizing on Substack. Again, this isn't a critique of Substack per se. I think like, why not go ahead, try to build a Twitter competitor. This, if you're ever going to do it, this is the time. It's an interesting thing to do, right? But don't tell me you're above everything pro writer because you're not, because this isn't a pro writer move. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, that's not a critique per and, and it's not a pro writer move that stems not from the Substack founders being bad actors it stems from the fact they raised a lot of venture capital money and they have a goal to build a successful company. And that is misaligned with what is the goal and priority of the individual writer. That misalignment is okay, right? You can still deliver. Look, we have the easiest to use platform. Everyone knows what it is. We're going to try to build up network effects. We're going to deliver more users. And I, as a writer can say, okay, there is a trade-off here. It's a for-profit company that has raised a lot of money and they might do some stuff, but you know what? I'm not technical. I don't know how to do this sort of stuff. I'll sign up for Substack. Everyone knows what it is. It's easy to monetize. They've done a lot of work on the UI. I'll still do it. I, 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 and oh, 
by the way, the terms of service say they have the right to bundle my content at some point in the future, X, Y, Z, da, 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 or whatever. Like, I'm not going to think too much about that. I'm just going to sign up and do it. Right. Like this, this is, this is, this is the way if I could use you know, a, a current sort of thing, but instead they're like, no, we're pro writer. We're pro writer. We're not going to lock you in. We're not going to do X, Y, Z. It's like, that's fine to say, but the structure of your company inevitably means there's going to be conflict between what's best for writers and what's best for you. And mm-hmm. it would have been better for Substack to take that head on and to then be able to be free to make business decisions that are good for the company. And I would argue if there's like a Substack bundle, like $25 a month, get access to all of Substack. I think that would be good for Substack writers in the long run, right? If you, if you, you know, one of the I largest do publications too. on earth. It's one thing I wanted to add because on a couple podcasts over the last couple months, I've said how much I have enjoyed reading Substack and enjoyed discovering all these new people. It is expensive to read Substack and it's not something that at least to read as many different Substacks as I'm reading to prepare for these shows and it's not something that's that accessible to normal people but if right, you, you are made, you are the classic you get too expensive so i was gonna it, say these, okay. these are like actual <laughs> expenses um but if you made it into a bundled product that was 25 to 30 dollars a month i think that would be a really compelling product for people and your point is they have basically half-assed it and made it impossible no, no. to bundle it, it's not. It's not half-assed. It, it, it's. I believe them. I. I believe them when they say we we're going to be maximally pro-writer. We're not going to lock you in. We're right. not going to assert any sort of rights to your content. It's your content. It's your customers. I'm not saying that was fake. What I'm saying was that was an unrealistic position to hold in the long run because at some point, what's best for Substack was going to be in conflict with what's best for writers. We Mm. reached that point this weekend. It would have been better for Substack to reach that point on their own terms in a way that is is is, would be more beneficial to the company, so that they could come to writers and say. You sign over X, Y, or Z. We may include you in a bundled product, but in the long run, it will be better for everyone. Correct. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's my angle. It, it, it's it, again, to be fair, it's it's unclear what that would look like. You know, would they have gotten the biggest name writers that they might have sort of a, a, along the time? But they built a great product. Like that's what they should have focused on. Look, the UX is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of writers, honestly, they just don't like. You could have built your own newsletter before i as i did right i showed how to do it why did no one do what i did in part because it was hard you had to put all these different pieces together right substack absolutely filled a market need to have a one-stop shop we'll take care of everything and i will pay the 10 percent because i have no idea how to code and do the stuff yeah, that you're the 10% doing with ideal is, i think is totally fine like i think yeah. it's it, 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 like for what you're getting it's it, it's it's a you're getting a lot of value and that's what they should have sold and and it'll be like, look, if you care about having no control, no one can do anything with you, what to do? Well, there's a bunch of open source software over here. We we advise you can even put a blog post. If you want X Y Z, we you know, we've partnered with WordPress.com or you know, or Word, you know, all these sort like other sort of alternate not WordPress.com. That's the that's the Fort pay one, but WordPress.org. And again, this is my I I, I I know the Substack guys. I, I like them. I like Substack. I'm cheering for it, right? I, I feel yeah. I view Substack as a part of my personal legacy, and I'm and so I want the company to succeed massively. Like, and so I almost feel 
uh, not subjective, not objective talking about it precisely because I feel like I view everything they do with such angst because I do want them to sort of succeed and, and, and be be a big thing because I think it, it I think it's good. For, like, I, I'm proud of it. I'm proud that it exists. And I'm frustrated about it. And I get what I've always been the most frustrated about is this statement. I'm like, you can't be the most pro writer company as long as you're a for profit company that's raising money that's raising VC money is going to be a centralized platform. You're going to have to make decisions that are not the best for any one individual writer, even if they might be best for, for the, 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 the whole. Right. And, and I don't know that that's just sort of the angle this weekend. Now, again, maybe their eight dimensional chess worked out. Everyone's going to learn about Substack notes. Elon will be shamed into not blocking the links sort of on Twitter. Again, this is part of the Elon experience. You have no idea what's going to happen. What's what, what's going to go on. And Hey, if they actually build a Twitter alternative, like, like that's a home run, right? That's a yeah, grand. And slam. you know what? I I should note that I've enjoyed using it early on. The reason I'm saying it's difficult to imagine it succeeding and at least succeeding in a meaningful way it is it's just really hard to port over the giant networks that exist on Twitter and make right. it because so Twitter vital. shut off that 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 bit. Well, not only that, it's just everyone's on Twitter and that's where all the intersections sort of happen. And so it's just going to be really hard to recreate that anywhere. Like, I'll be shocked if anyone replaces Twitter with that sort of core function going forward. But yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. I'll just just sort of uh, tack on to this from a Substack the company perspective. I think notes is great. I think they should absolutely try to build a Twitter competitor. It's the only way they're going to justify their valuation is like to really like meaningfully shift people to using their app where they actually can meaningful, you know, control delivery or discovery and, Mm -hmm. and can drive new users. I think it makes a ton of sense for Substack the business. Now to go back to my other bit where I think that Substack has made a mistake is it's not just the getting the right to bundle, but also they should have locked in their writers more. Guess what? If writers are locked in and it's really hard to sort of transfer their subscriptions from them, because Substack doesn't just let you transfer your email list. You can also shift the subscriptions themselves. So people don't have to like resubscribe on another site because it's in your Stripe account and you can sort of shift them over. And if and so they're handicapped. If they do this, if Elon Musk had had actually held the line here, they would be in real danger of losing of, of, of losing writers because they'd never lock them in, right? If you lock them in, you have more strategic flexibility to do this broader thing. And, and again, I recognize that, like, there's a bit, this goes back to a whole trade-off discussion. If you want to operate a business and make strategic decisions, you got to sort of, like, do stuff that makes people unhappy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you need to, at some point, make your writers mad because it's, it's best for the company as a whole. And uh, Twitter, Elon Musk, like I said, arguably this was the right thing to do. Like he, like now it would have been better had he not fired review when he had his own alternative instead of asking people to write four thousand word essays in tweets, which is just an insanely ridiculous experience. Right. And so, (laughs) this is why it's fun to talk about because there's this value chain of writing on the internet is totally screwed up, and it's basically screwed up because Twitter's been such a mess for so long. But it's also frustrating to write about because no one can like do the right things. It's just, it's just a mess. It's a total mess. It's a mess on all sides. And I think that's a good place. This is why I wanted to build my own software. Like I don't, I don't want, I was very, I I used to use a software called memberful. They were acquired by Patreon. 
I did not feel comfortable with Patreon just because decisions they've made in the past. They've raised a ton of money also. I'm not clear like what their long-run fortunes are. When mm-hmm. you're in a situation where you're dependent on a platform that has to make decisions to justify their valuation, it's a iffy place to be, right? And and like I don't want my fortunes to be governed by other people's incentives. Well, and on the Substack front, my one question would be I know they're a private company, but are they are they losing money or are they yes. not making Lots enough money? money? <laughs> okay, so it's not necessarily a viable business now. Is that the problem or is the problem that they're not multiplying growth and revenue and profit to the extent people would want to see? Well, so they they released their 2020 2021 financials in the talent of this like fundraise from their writers sort of thing. They didn't release 2022, which is not a great sign. Uh, you think you'd want to like, if it was great, you'd want to release it. They did spend a lot of money on those writer guarantees. Uh, and so if you took that away, they would be closer to profitability, but I don't think quite profitable yet, but I have to, I, I, I honestly haven't dug in yet. So uh, we can come back to that one if, if I'm wrong, but you know, this, we have the evidence that they went out to raise more money and they couldn't. Everyone yeah. in VC looks at them like, eh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> $650 million valuation? No, I don't think so. And that's it. This is actually another example. Substack went to the writers who, to Substack's immense credit, has created these new careers for these writers. That's that's amazing. Like We both have friends that are on Substack that have, that have wonderful careers doing it. And it's great. And I'm glad they exist. And I'm cheering for them. And I want them to succeed. I was extremely bothered that they went to those writers who have a total dependence on Substack and who have an, a natural love for Substack because Substack made this this new life possible for them and said, hey, do you want to give us some money and invest in this company? That's great. And oh, by the way, you're going to invest at this totally unrealistic valuation that we raised in one of the biggest tech bubbles ever. That's <laughs> right. Like, it re- this is that pro writer. That feels yeah. pretty anti-writer to me. It sounds like you're playing on writers' sort of emotions and affection for you to rip them off. Like, I would, I just have a problem with raising free writers in general. Like, you're asking them to put all their eggs in sort of one one bucket, but right. at least do it at a realistic valuation. To do it at a six hundred fifty million dollar valuation with no VC in all of tech would touch you at that number. Just like. What happened to being pro writer? This is what happens if you're not honest from the beginning. You do stuff that's really bad. I think that was bad. That fundraise really bothered me. But hey, it worked. So, well, and hey, maybe somewhere down the line, the eight dimensional chess from Substack leadership. Yeah, will you know pay what? Off. If this works out and they actually build the new Twitter, uh, guess what? The writers are, who invest in them are going to make their money. So, um, yeah. Well, and I, look, sincerely, both you and I are cheering for Substack. So hopefully it works out. Right. But, but this is, it just like if you're, you got to be honest about your incentives and your structure. Like, like just structurally speaking, you can't be the most pro writer platform because you're not open source. Like, like, the, like it sounds cliche, but the, the most pro writer is every single decision is always in the writer's interest. Now, there are things like UI, are you get the best UI with open source software? Are you be able to post? No, you're not. So there, there, like, there's things you can sell that are really beneficial, and you can be honest about the reality of your business. But yeah. it just like asking writers to invest at a ridiculous valuation and basically preying on their their affection, and then getting in a war that 
I mean, I guess maybe if you want to eight dimensional chess, let's go to 16 dimensional chess. <laughs> that war is maybe going to, if it works out, will justify the valuation. So maybe it'll all be fine in the end. So, hey, there you go. Yeah. And I think your point is, look, sell low maintenance backend software, sell promotional value, and you don't necessarily have to like overpromise in terms of how. Yeah. Well, and this is the problem is like, it's not clear how big of a business that is. Right. I mean, th- there is a bit where Substack is actually pursuing the optimal path. Being a Twitter replacement is the by far the most valuable sort of outcome that they could get. One of the problems they do have is they're so anti-advertising when uh, I, I, think that's probably like you can see there's like the athletic right they're like yeah. oh word no ads no ads no ads new york times buy those what's first thing they do add ads guess what <laughs> ads and attention and reading stuff goes hand in hand right like th- there's ads there's this the whole anti-ad sort of thing it's such an el- elitist rich person's view of the world right mm. like the the oh if you have lots of disposable income like <laughs> that's that's the way the whole internet should have been that way there should be nothing ad supported you should have had to pay for everything it's like well yeah that's one thing if you you know if you make a lot of money if you don't is that actually equitable is that actually a great outcome for everyone and i think there's a bit here where you know in the long run it's also tricky though because if you're trying to be an ad supported business without any subscription revenue what we've seen over the last 10 years particularly is that ads just cannibalize like the entire user experience and it's fucking terrible yeah, yeah no that's true that's true and i'm not saying some actually have ads today but no you, but like, they could if, do it tastefully because they have the subscription revenue as a base and you know like the new york times has ads and subscriptions but the ads are not like yep horribly intrusive. They, can, they, <laughs> they can have the user experience be the priority because yes. it's not there yeah that's right that's a very good distinction um i i I agree with you. Um, you know, in the long run, the, the probable outcome is Substack does have enterprise value, I think, because it has all these writers on it that would be interesting to someone. Like, it would actually be kind of funny, but I could see the New York Times buying Substack at some point. <laughs> um, like, they're just sort of – they're the real sort of, like, monster in publishing generally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but this would be, you know, at a much cheaper price than $650 million. And um and then we'd probably get ads and it'd probably be a bundle and <laughs> there. Well, and we'll all survive. Stuff. I do think that's a good take. Ads are not this like evil thing that's coming to poison the well for everybody. Um, in any event, I promised a couple parenting questions. I'll read three here. Yeah, sorry, I, I the rant went even longer than I anticipated. Well, we said at the top, Ben was fired up. Um, Greg says Tyler Cowan posits. In the future, every middle-class kid will grow up with a personalized AI assistant so long as the parents are okay with that. So I ask, Andrew, are you okay with your child having a personalized AI assistant? How do you think you'll prepare your kid to exist in a world with prevalent AI? Jeremy asks, Andrew, what are your plans for introducing your child to screens? And Ben, what was the screen time timeline for your kids? And then Dan asks, Andrew, I'm curious if you thought about how you'll handle your son's relationship with technology. Has doing the show changed your point of view at all? Um, Good questions across the board. I put the AI assistant question to my wife, Alice, and she looked at me like I was insane. She (laughs) because (laughs) we're right now just trying to feed the kid every three hours. And I don't think her brain could could really compute the uh, the idea of a personalized AI assistant an an AI assistant to answer the question for her. Yeah. Or she like, look, she will take any help she could get right now. Um, But I would say 
I'm going to be crowdsourcing the wisdom on what to do with AI and children. Uh, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to think that I have like the best ideas on that front. So we'll probably just go with whatever his classmates are doing. Um, <laughs> what I'll Which, say though, it's funny because that that is a real thing that happens with phones, right? The 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 pressure that comes on parents who want to hold off on getting their kid a phone is when you get to the point that all the classmates have one. Yeah. And like and then it's like you're like you're harming your kids like social life. (laughs) (laughs) Right. right? Well, and and look, the question about whether the show has changed my point of view is a good one because it, it has changed my point of view in two key respects. Number one, talking to you is instructive for me because I found out that you also derive a ton of benefits from getting out in the world and seeing people. And you came to that epiphany on your own over the last five years or so. And in the past, I, there was always sort of like a, a voice in the back of my head. Cause I obviously believe all that too, but I was like, well, maybe you're just a complete Luddite. You Ben are like the savviest tech user I know, and you've reached the same conclusion. So I'm obviously going to be emphasizing touch grass principles in young Charlie's life here. But then at the same time, talking to you every week like you can't press pause on the rest of the world's tech progress it goes back to the open letter ai conversation we had like i'm just not sure it's useful to like say oh you're not going to get a smartphone until you're 18 years old like if that's going to be the way the world is communicating then i want my son to be fluent in all of that and so i'm I, while I am going to remain a Luddite, I'm not going to be imposing all of those constraints on my uh, little kid there. Yeah, and what you want to instill is self-control and discipline, right? And, and, and I don't, you know, there's a, this goes back to, you know, I was raised, you know, never touch alcohol, you know, X, Y, Z. Uh, guess what? Never touching alcohol and then going to University of Wisconsin, <laughs> yeah. not a good combination, right? Uh, yep. You know, when I have hands and knees in the middle of Park Street, puking my guts out, uh, I kind of wish I had, you know, learned how to Soft handle Soft launch your drinking then. career? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I do think there's there's uh, something, there's like, what's, what's the goal, right? Is the goal, if you're just saying no screens uh, and I'm going to, you know, be hovering over you, making sure that doesn't happen, what are you actually accomplishing, right? You're accomplishing your, your kids probably mad. They feel left out. They're not a part of their, their friend group. Who's into this sort of stuff with more lenient parents they, they're going to resent you. And then they're going to leave the house and guess what they're going to do. Just like be utterly obsessed with and have no actual ability or context to sort of control themselves and no trait. Like the, 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 the role of a parent, particularly when your kids are young, you see people like, like they're, they try to like reason with their, like they're, they're, they're kids. They can't reason that like you're, they're developing this ability to think broadly, to, to have context and logic. Your job is to provide guardrails and, and discipline, not discipline. That's like a punishment, but setting, like setting examples and how you do stuff and like, and um, you know, and what's, what expectations are. And to your point, I think this goes with the reality that technology is sort of essential going forward. And so my, my, again, I'm not saying I'm the best at this one. I think this, this screen time issue is challenging. My son and YouTube have a very, uh, <laughs> strong relationship, yeah. uh, as, as I think a lot of, of, of kids, his age, 
but there is a bit where that's that's the way it's going to sort of be going forward. There are real benefits. And to the whole sort of touch grass bit, you're going to get more from your touch grass experiences when you're excited about and pursuing those touch grass experiences because they're so much better than the experiences that you're on a screen, right? If, if you, if mm. you will, like, no, you're going to live on the grass. And when you're 18, then you can come <laughs> in and check out the big screen TV. Like not only is there going to be this unhealthy relationship as you're sort of suddenly plunged into the deep end, but also you have grown up to resent the thing that was actually the best part of life. Right. And so I, I do think there's a balance and moderation in everything this is a general principle, but I do think it applies to this screen thing. Your goal as a parent should be for your kids to be able to control themselves, to yeah. know when to put the phone down, when no one to put the iPad down, know to appreciate and understand why being with people in person is better, that it is fun to go outside and play. And I, I and it, you think about your kid, if it's like if they're outside. And all they're thinking about is how resentful they are of you because they're not allowed to do this way. They're not even in the right state of mind to enjoy what you're trying to get them to enjoy. So, um, anyhow, that, that that that's sort of broad broadly how I think about it. Am I successful at that? Uh, I think it. You know, <laughs> like any parent, well, and it's really hard it when you're trying going, to yeah. impart discipline. Like I've babysat in the past. My experience with young Charles is like uh, pretty pretty limited. But when I've been babysitting. The magnetism of screens for young children is fucking unbelievable. Yep. And so, you know, it's hard to to impart restraint when there's like a physical reaction to it. Um, but I will do my best to model behavior, touch grass as often as possible. The one thing I will say is uh, I have no problem with and in fact endorse the like for I mean, I grew, you know, I, I my kids, I was traveling back and forth from Taiwan to the U.S., right? Guess what's mm-hmm. phenomenal for making that trip with little kids? Being able Screens. to give them an iPad, right? <laughs> like it does, works very well. Uh, guess what's really good for a kid? It's good for a kid for their parents to have a really strong relationship and to still have their own life that's not necessarily kid-dependent. How can you accomplish that? Well, you could get a babysitter, and mm. the babysitter could – let the kids watch an iPad the whole night and just make sure they they don't die, right? And the kids are going to be happy. Easiest job ever for a babysitter. You can go out and have a nice meal w- 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 with your wife. You could actually go to a nice restaurant if you can teach your kids to sit properly at a table and eat nicely. And by the way, let them look at a phone, right? Like yeah. I, I, when I see some people will see people in a restaurant and their kids are on iPads or whatever, and they're they're like tut 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 them. It's like those no, me sitting here. I appreciate you have uh, mollified. <laughs> yeah, your thank kids. you so much. Yeah, and, you know, kudos to you enjoying a nice meal, and me also enjoying a nice meal with my kids. And it, you know, everyone's sort of everyone's sort of the winner here. I like now again. It's a great everything- take. No, no, no. That's such a good take because there are so many parents that I've come into contact with who are religious about the anti-screen like position. And for the first several years, like no screens whatsoever. And they are number one, really annoying. And number two, moving forward, I will raise this counterpoint in like dinner party conversation and, and make the argument that a little bit of balance is a good thing for a healthy relationship, which ultimately redounds to the children. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I mean, this is my big picture sort of parenting take in general is you need to live your own life. 
like like if you want to model for your kid the value of touching grass and having real world relationships you don't do that by lecturing them and forcing them as you hover over them go play with your friend now i'm watching you go play with your friend no you demonstrate that by you having good friends by you being clear and as they I mean, obviously charlie's not going to comprehend this now but as he goes older and he sees like yeah daddy's going out with his friends tonight and mommy's cool with it and mommy's you know wants him to go to go have a good time and vice versa like kids learn kids are mimetic machines they learn from observing and copying what you do not from what you tell them to do mm-hmm. if you're living this where you're just always around them and go do this now and go do that they're they're what they're taking away from that is they're going to be seeking out someone to tell them what to do their whole life in general, which is not what you want. You want sort of like an independent thinker or value. And they're not going to believe you that this experience is valuable because they like, well, my perception of being forced to touch grass is it sucks and I'm resentful of it. And like, (laughs) why is daddy always telling me what to do? Right. Like, so, so in just in general, like it's important to not get lost in your kids because to the extent you get lost in your kids, it actually hurts them. They need to be their own people and they become their own people by observing you be your own person. And, and, and it's important as parents to not lose yourself in the process. And don't feel bad about saying, I need a break. I'm going to go out with the boys and watch a basketball game. Or, you know what, Alice? You're like, you know, go out, do whatever, you know, Get your dinner, hobby yeah. is. Yeah. And like, like it, it's going to be okay. And the one sort of big observation I had. When, when, you know, I, re- I think I tell this before, I read all the books, it's all over the Z, and it's all overwhelming. And then you're I'm in a different culture and they're doing stuff that I don't, that uh, the book said that was wrong. You know what? <laughs> the human race survived without parenting books for a very, very long time. That was right? the only bit of advice you gave me when I told you that Alice was pregnant. You were like, you know what? I read like 15 different books and I would suggest you don't do that. And I really appreciated <laughs> that. You know, like. I think that you can really like kids get screwed up, but they're not loved and not cared for. Mm-hmm. If you're in the other direction, I think that they're probably going to be okay. Regardless, if you love your kid, like he's going to turn out fine. He's going to turn out. He's probably going to turn out and parents bend themselves in, in a pretzel and, and they take on all this responsibility that at the end of the day, like your kid's life is going to be his responsibility. It's going to be up to him to make of uh, of his life whatever he's going to make of it. And your goal as a parent is to empower him to have the capability to make right decisions, to have a sense of, of right and wrong. And you do that by letting him figure it out, by letting him live his life. And so many parents want to live the life for their kids. They're, they're so focused on the outcome. They have to get to the right college. They have to get the right test score. They have to do X, Y, Z. And they're missing the fact that it's the actual struggle and figuring it out that's what you're supposed to be teaching. And this goes back to the AI model thing, right? What's the, what, what, what's the goal here? The, the, the reason why so much of this homework stuff is messed up is because we're focused on the output. It's the right. process that actually matters. And, you know, it's like, I mean, the, you know, Trust the results or trust the process. The best results come from the best process. Yeah. Well, and in, in all seriousness, that would be my answer to Greg. It's like if the, the person grows up with a personalized AI assistant, I think that's fine if that's the way society is trending. Not just that, like, but they're probably going to be better off if they can if they know how to leverage it and handle it, right? Imagine exactly. Like, and like, how to it, balance it in your own life and, you know. And how to make, how to make what you do better. Called for, sure. Yeah. So 
Um, a lot of wisdom there at the end of the podcast. I do need to emphasize that at this moment in time, I am just trying to establish a regular feeding schedule with my <laughs> son. <laughs> and we're really just trying to keep our heads above water here. But uh, this was a great podcast. It's great to be back. We are coming back next week. We'll be back to the regular schedule. Well, no, and- we might be back to the regular schedule. Let's let's take it one week at a time. We have yep. one episode this week. Uh, we were let you sort of ease in and you know we'll, 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 let's not let's, not, let's, let's under promise and over deliver here just like charlie I, yes just like alice i guess i should say i think that's a good policy all right well until next week ben i will talk to you soon talk to you later <laughs>